0: Now give our attention to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41, and we'll be discussing the bread of life discourse from our Lord, Savior, and friend, Jesus Christ. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? as far as the reading of God's word. So, I want to begin this morning by talking about the simple fact that theology is a difficult business. Um, It's difficult because theology is, of course, the study of God. Right? That's what it means. Theos, uh, God, uh, ology, uh, study, devotion to. And so it's by definition the study of one who is Infinite one who is beyond our grasp because we are finite creatures what's that mean what do, what do i mean by the word finite jack we have a beginning and an end we have a beginning and an end yeah we're measurable we have we have we we we, we, we have limits god is infinite right negating finiteness he has no limits he has no beginning no end he is in in every way Beyond our understanding. Would somebody please read for us uh, Romans 11, 33 to 36? Mr. Johnson, have you got it? Well, mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, for who has been his counselor? or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. So you read several rhetorical questions in there, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? What's the implied answer to those rhetorical questions? No one. No one. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has been his counselor. Why? Because he is so transcendent, because he is so great, because he is so beyond us. And it is for that reason that many people give up on the study of theology. Because they they, they submit that, well, God is infinite and I'm finite. God, uh, you know, he says in the prophet Isaiah that, Uh, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts above your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, Isaiah 55, 9. But that would be a mistake to completely give up because just because we cannot know God completely does not mean we cannot know him at all. For the psalmist says in Psalm 111, 2, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all those who delight in him. So on the one hand, you will never fully wrap your hands around God. He is too big for you. On the other hand, that does not mean that you cannot know about him, that you cannot understand things about him. Um, I don't don't want to put put my wife on on too big of a pedestal here, but but she is um, utterly beyond Lynn in her capacity. Lynn is one year old. She cannot fully understand her mother or why she does what she does. And yet, my one-year-old daughter does understand some things about her mother. Namely, this is the source of, of food and clothing and cleanliness and all of these. She knows some things about her mom without knowing everything. In the same way, we can know some things about God. In fact, we can know many things about God without knowing everything right? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the Lord says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. And so we are called to know what we can know while also understanding that we can't know everything. And I bring all of that up because This passage of scripture, what's commonly called the Bread of Life discourse in John six, which actually began a few verses earlier, but the real the real meat of it is here, um, is one of the most theologically dense teachings of Jesus's. um, We'll say his earthly ministry. It it, it is so heavy and focused on the deep things of God's word. Uh, You'll recall that Jesus has been growing in popularity. Uh, due to the signs and miracles that he's been doing, especially in the feeding of the 5,000. And so we, we saw a few weeks ago that after he distanced himself from the crowds and dismissed them, he they still sought him out and tracked him down. And they had some, what we'll call, ulterior motives for seeking the Lord. They weren't necessarily interested in him, but uh, as you saw last week in verse 26, the Lord says, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. What's he say? He says, the, the reason you're here is not because you're interested in me. It's not because you're interested in the things of God. It's because uh, yesterday I fed you and now you would like more food. That is why you are here. And, and then they, they uh, ask him, all right, Lord, if that's the case then what sign do you do for us? He said, they say in verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so Jesus explains the works of God in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that this is the way it's always been. And what we find then in their response to this plain and simple teaching is that they grumble. That's how the passage begins. They grumbled about him. Now that word should be setting off some alarm bells for us, grumbling against the Lord. Uh, There's a particularly famous passage uh, in the Old Testament where the people of God grumbled against him after he had fed them with the bread that came down from heaven about which Jesus is talking here. That would be Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, I'll read that for us. Um, The the Lord uh, supplies the people with bread that comes down from heaven to sustain them in their wilderness wanderings. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And then skipping down to verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, this is Moses speaking to the Lord about his ministry to God's people. He says, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. The point is, nothing has changed since that episode. The people of the Lord, the people of Israel, are still grumbling at the Lord's provision and the means by which he provides it. And Moses, being just a man, says, Lord, if this is the way it's going to be for the next 40 years, just do me a favor. If I have found favor in your sight, kill me now. That is how stiff-necked, that is how hard-hearted these people are. And so now Jesus, having given the benefit of the doubt long enough, and having tried to help them see that they are in the exact scenario of their forefathers, of whom they are so proud. He, he drops the hammer, exposing their misunderstanding. He, he exposes their true problem and their greatest need, and he does so by humbling them and exposing them with some very deep and profound theological truths. And it's, it's not without intent. It's not, with, it's, not without, it's not a coincidence that these two truths that he's going to unpack in this teaching section are, are the very truths that continue to be most under assault today uh, in the Christian faith. And that is, he's going to talk about the doctrine of election in verses 41 to 51. And he's going to talk about the exclusivity of himself in Savior as Savior in verses 52 to 59. And so first the doctrine of election and then the exclusivity of Christ. And he starts in on the crowd in verse 44, uh, saying to them, No one... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now all of you learned this in elementary school, the difference between the words can and may, right? Can I be excused? I don't know. Can you? May I be excused, right? What does can have to do with? Can has to do with permission. Excuse me. Can has to do with ability. May has to do with permission. And Jesus is saying, no one can come to me. He's speaking in terms of ability. The the Greek word that's translated can here actually could also be rendered, no one has the power to come to me. No one one is able to come to me. Leon Morris writes, "Uh, people like to feel independent. They like to think that they can come or that they can co- go uh, to Jesus entirely of their own volition. And Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No one, no one at all can come unless the Father draws him. And then Calvin would add, Christ declares that the doctrine of the gospel, though it is preached to all without exception, cannot be embraced by all. But a new understanding and a new perception are required. See, everyone is invited to come to the Lord. Jesus says in another place, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He says all, he means all. All that will come will find rest for their souls. Uh, The prophet Joel says in Joel 2.32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Saved. This is an invitation that is offered to everyone. However, not all are able to respond because Calvin, as Calvin says, they don't understand. A new understanding is required. They they don't perceive the need. As Paul would write in First Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We call this in other places of scripture, the hardness of the heart. And that is precisely what the Jewish crowds are evidencing. They're evidencing a hardness of their own heart. They do not perceive, they do not understand who it is that is before them. And it's a really tragic thing, and it's probably why Jesus says three times over in this passage, I am the bread of life. Now, I believe Mr. Haas probably has talked with you all a little bit about the, the I am statements last week and their function in John. I believe there's eight of them, if I'm remembering correctly right now. I'll back check myself on that later. But the point is, Jesus over and over and over again identifies himself, and particularly in this passage, as I am. He identifies himself as the living and true God, as Yahweh, because that is the very name that the Lord declared to Moses of himself in the burning bush. Moses says, who shall I say to the Israelites? Who shall I say to them who sent me? He says, tell them I am sent, me to, sent you. And Jesus says every time, I am, that's me. And you, in your hardness of heart, just as your fathers did in the wilderness, are rejected are grumbling, are complaining, are refusing to come. And what that means is you don't understand who it is that you're dealing with. You don't understand the scenario here. And this has been a a building theme that we've seen time and time and time again in John's Gospel. If you think back to John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. and, And Jesus gives the famous teaching there about the need to be what? To be born again. Nicodemus is a smart guy. He is the teacher of Israel. And what does he ask? He says, How am I supposed to be born again? Do, you, do I crawl back into my mother's womb and come out a second time? Is that how? What are you talking about? He doesn't understand the need of spiritual rebirth. He doesn't understand that Jesus is speaking of spiritual essential qualities. The same thing happens in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, where Jesus says, Anyone who drinks of the water that I will give, that water will well up in them to a spring of eternal life. I give living water. And what does she ask? She says, sir, you have have no bucket with which to draw. You have no well to draw from other than this one. What are you talking about? She does not understand. She doesn't perceive that she has a spiritual need that he's highlighting. It is the same thing with the the bread that comes down from heaven. The the bread that he fed them with the day before, the feeding of the 5,000, was pointing to the fact that Jesus alone can save, that Jesus alone can provide, that Jesus alone is the source of life and sustenance. They do not understand. No one understands. People don't understand their need for God. And then he gives the great exception, the great qualification in verse 44. Unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only thing that will open a sinner's eyes to their need, the only thing that will change their perspective and give them a new understanding is a supernatural work of God. And this is why even in the Old Testament, right? I referenced Joel 2.32 earlier. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know how the verse ends? And among the survivors will be those whom the Lord calls. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We must call on the name of the Lord. And those who do that are the ones who were first called by the Lord. In the same way, Jesus is saying, without the work of my Father, you will not come to me. You may not come to me. You cannot come to me now how do we know that the father is drawing someone how do we know that someone is elected right that's what we're dealing with here the doctrine of election the need of the father to call his people to the son how do we know well john 3 8 says spirit blows where it wants and you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes but you feel it when it blows In the same way, we can't control God. We don't have any say in in who he elects and who he doesn't and who he draws and who he doesn't. We we can't manifest that. But we do know what the evidences are that someone is being drawn or has been drawn. And they're actually summarized quite well for us in our shorter catechism number 31 under the heading um, What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby... Firstly, convincing us of our sin and misery. Secondly, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And thirdly, renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. How do you know the Spirit of God is drawing you? How do you know that this is happening in your life? You see those three things. You see a conviction of sin in your life. You understand, I have broken God's law. And not only, like, I've done what the Bible says don't do, but, like, the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and I have broken the sovereign rule of the king and creator of all things. I am guilty in his sight. A conviction of sin and misery. Not an intellectual apprehension, but a personal feeling of guilt over it. And then an enlightening of our minds and the knowledge of Christ. Understanding not only am I guilty, but there is a way of salvation. There is one who has come down from heaven that I might be renewed, that I might be restored, that I might be saved. And then renewing our wills. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand Jesus is the Savior. And now I have a will. I have a desire that I did not previously have, apart from his supernatural work, to follow and obey. And Jesus is looking at this crowd of Jewish people, and he's saying, Father's not drawing You don't understand. You don't care about your sin. You don't care about the fact that I am God in the flesh before you and that I'm offering you eternal life. You only care about the things of this world. And so he says, This is the way it's always been. Verse 45 It is written in the prophets they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What's the evidence that someone has been born again? What's the evidence that someone understands their need? They come to Jesus. Jesus is saying, your refusal, your grumbling, your hardness of heart is evidence of that. It's evidence against you. And so if you're here this morning and you're being convinced of sin, you're being convicted of sin, And you're seeking salvation in Christ and a will to follow him. And I would encourage you to press on in that. I would encourage you to to remember that uh, we are called to pray to the Lord for our daily bread. Every day, Lord, help me to grow in this. Help me to grow in an awareness of my sin that I might turn from it. Help me to grow in an awareness of your grace and mercy that I might turn to it. Help me to grow in a desire of new obedience. If you're here this morning, and perhaps these these items, these qualities of being drawn by the Father, uh, they described you better a year ago or two years ago than they do right now, then my encouragement to you is very much the same. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation, Psalm 51. Lord, I I used to be really about this, and I, I noticed that I'm being pulled away by the world. Don't let me do that. Anchor my soul in the grace of Christ. Draw me near once more. Draw me nearer than I was before. Or perhaps you're here and all of this sounds like, well, that's just what he's supposed to say because he's the pastor and we're at church and that's what they do. I would urge you to faithfully consider what you know the rest of the Bible teaches about those who are not drawn, about those who, who do not come to the Lord Jesus. And I would say, ask and you will find. Because the Father delights to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it. Rome, uh, Luke eleven ten 10 to 13 says that very thing. Finally, on this doctrine of election, notice the security that comes from it. Look back at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then what happens to all who come? And I will, not might, not will consider, not I'll think about it, I will raise him up on the last day. And and the good news and the assurance that that is for us is that as you see these signs in your life, as you see these signs that we were just talking about, about being drawn to the Father, you are assured not only of your standing today, but you're assured of your eternal standing. You're you're assured that you will be raised to the resurrection of life. As Paul would say in Philippians 1.6, I am convinced of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, the drawing of the Father, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's That's what Jesus is talking about here, about being raised on the last day. Because your election did not start with you, but you were drawn from your deadness and trespasses and sins by the Father, and because your election is not sustained by you, but rather by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will not be completed by you. It will be completed by the Lord Jesus, who will raise you up at the last day. And because that's true, you can be confident that it will be seen all the way through. Because I don't know about you, but I'm a screw-up, and I break things, and I lose my car keys every day, and I do all kinds of foolish things. And it's such good news that the most important thing in my life is not up to me, it's not in my control, and it's not in yours either. But you can trust him, and you can be assured of the fullness of it. Now, with very little time, let us now get into the most difficult, complex, and controversial part of the message, uh, the exclusive claims of Christ. And we see this in verses 51 to 55 Let me reread some of this for you, because we we need to have this in the front of our minds for, for why this is a little bit difficult. It says, I am the living bread, verse 51, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you... Eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. And he goes on and says, My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now the reason this passage is difficult and controversial is um, many, uh, uh, I would say, falsely attribute this passage, what he's talking about here, to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Specifically, Roman Catholics will take John 6 and say, see, this is proof of of the necessity of the doctrine of transubstantiation. That is the teaching that the bread and the cup become the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh, no life for you, so it must become his flesh in some way. That's what they say. And if we have just this passage in isolation, it is easy to see how they would get there but that doesn't make it right because we don't have this passage in isolation. We have the whole of the scripture. There are at least five reasons why Jesus is not speaking about the Lord's Supper here. First of all, the Lord's Supper had not been instituted yet. So it would be impossible for his original hearers to understand it to be the Lord's Supper. That doesn't work. That's the best reason by the way. There are more, but like that one alone I think is sufficient. Secondly, if Jesus were teaching that one can only be saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper, this would contradict his emphasis on salvation through faith elsewhere in this very chapter. Thirdly, Jesus uses a different word for flesh in this passage than he does for body in the Lord's Supper. The word for flesh is sarks, the word for body is soma, You don't need to know that. But the point is, he's not using the same language here that he does in the institution of the Lord's Supper, so there's not a word-level connection. Uh, Fourth, uh, in John 6.63, Jesus informs us that his words had a spiritual, not a fleshly meaning. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So that's what the passage is not talking about. What is it talking about? What are we dealing with here? I think Colin Cruz captures it well. He says, the living bread was his flesh, not his body in a Eucharistic text, which he would give for the life of the world. This is an allusion to his death on the cross. Jesus, the Logos, who became flesh, John 1.14, became the bread of life for a sinful world only by laying down his life so that others might live. In other words, what he's pointing to is what the, what the prophets had pointed to, what, the, what the, the passages in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, all of them had pointed to that through the, the sacrifice of himself and of his body, life would be provided to all. Now I think that's why some even well-meaning evangelical Christians will get confused and mix this up with the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper also points to Christ's death on the cross for us. But the referent is his crucifixion. The referent is that in his life, death, and resurrection, the whole of what he accomplished in his humanity on our behalf, that, and that alone, is the source of life. That provides all that we need. And I would remind you again, because I know that the pushback on teaching like this is, well, Pastor Early and all those Presbyterians, they're just spiritualizing the text because they can't bear to accept a literal reading. I want to tell you, um, I am spiritualizing the text, but I'm doing so because that's what the text requires you to do, okay? I am spiritualizing the text, but Jesus says at the end of this teaching that his words are meant to be interpreted in a spiritual way, so you're on good ground so to do at that point. And I would also say that, as was mentioned earlier, this has been the trend throughout the whole of the gospel. The gospel of John, that people hear this, this this teaching about the gospel, they hear this teaching about being born again, they hear this teaching about eternal life and they always misunderstand him to mean physically, just as the grumbling Jews are at this point how in the world do you expect me to eat your flesh, Jesus? And he says look on me and live all whom the Father sends to me will come to me Jesus is saying that the power that he affords us in his life, death and resurrection is our hope for eternal life. There is no other hope. There is no other source of life. It is in many ways echoed by the language of the Apostle Paul, as I quoted earlier in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. I am not my own. Therefore, this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what Jesus is saying in this in this passage in a nutshell. That the life that these people, the life that these Jews are missing out on, that they are refusing, is the life that only comes through faith and his sacrifice on the cross. And what I want to ask you all this morning, what I want to challenge you all with this morning, is that Jesus said these things, we read in the end of the passage, as he taught at the synagogue in Capernaum. That is to say, he said these in corporate gathered worship service and what happens after he says these hard sayings they leave they don't just leave the synagogue because the service is over, they leave him they don't want it they want something else that that's what we'll look at next week and I would encourage you don't let that be you yes we'll depart from this place at the, at the benediction, the morning service but never ever ever from the Lord Jesus for life and happiness and joy are only found in him. Let us pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word. We thank you even for uh, heavy, weighty passages like this one, Lord. And I pray that for these, my young friends, that they would see the work of your drawing them in their lives, that they would pursue and press into those things. And Lord, that they would find life and the precious Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.